What is happening, everyone? Welcome again to The Window, Canada's sports betting podcast. Ahead on today's episode of The Window, the Thanksgiving tradition of all traditions, the Lions and Cowboys embarrass themselves. I'll break down our bad beat for the friends of the podcast entry in Circa Survivor as COVID-19 wins again. Then it's the preview of the Sunday slate in Week 12 of the NFL where I handicap each game. What are the elements of the game that I think provide an edge relative to the point spread? We've got the lily pad theory happening in New England, some buy low, sell high in LA, a little game script analysis in Buffalo, and why the Jets might win their first of the season. It's time to head to the window. Let's go. Welcome to The Window. I'm your host, Matt Russell, and it's a sad day. Friday, the NFL pod, we're all excited about getting it going for the weekend, but of course, Thanksgiving Thursday didn't go how we'd hoped, and it started earlier on in the week. We talked about this on the Wednesday podcast, the massive wrench into our best laid plans in Circa Survivor. So, Talked about it yesterday. Didn't have any plays for either of those games. Didn't want anything to do with either of those games, right? We, as bettors, the thing that we have over the sports book is we don't have to bet games if we don't have an edge, if we don't like one side. Texans, Lions. Didn't love taking the Texans minus three on the road. Didn't love betting the Lions. Don't have to play it right? Very similar situation with Washington and Dallas. Now, as for the survivor element here, you know, when you're playing in a survivor pool, the reason we talk about this is because a lot of people do, first and foremost, but because you need to have a strategy. And so our strategy was, first of all, the first four or five weeks, the strategy is survive. All we were looking to do, uh, fade bad teams, take playoff caliber teams that we expected to do well this season, and just make sure that we didn't need them later on in the season or that this was the best time to use them relative to their opponents. So week one, we take the Bills over the Jets, for example, right? I was lower on the Jets than most people were going into the season. And so I wasn't bothered by the fact that the Bills were just a six and a half point favorite that uh, in, in week one. And so the first thing I can say is sort of have a strategy and it should pay off or at least it will give you a peace of mind should you, you know, should somebody lose along the way? You go, you can go, okay, well, at least our strategy was this and it just didn't work out because we can't make the catches, we can't run the touchdowns in. And so week five rolls around and now we have to start thinking about planning ahead, right? We got through that first sort of quarter of the season, happy to do so, uh, especially given the fact that we had this Friends of the Podcast entry and we were, you know, responsible for people uh, also being involved in this that wasn't just myself. And so week five rolls around and we have this elaborate conversation with one of the friends of the podcast, David Pereira, and we end up choosing Houston. Haven't won a game all season. They've just fired their coach. They're playing Jacksonville. You know, it's a ballsy call. But we look ahead and we go, we're not going to use them any, at any point the rest of the season. Thanksgiving Day, you've got Dallas at home to Washington here. You've got, you know, a basically a road team in Houston that hasn't won a game, why would we ever use them come Thanksgiving? So we use them. They win relatively easily, a bit of a sweat early on, as most NFL games are, but relatively easily in the end. And then hours later, Dak Prescott gets injured. 
and it throws everything into flux. So the strategy of saving Dallas, which of course many were going to use, I'm not saying that they weren't, the strategy of using Dallas, or not using Dallas, I should say, and saving them for Thanksgiving goes out the window, which is fine because we're all on this sort of level playing field here. And at that point, you go, okay, that's too bad that we used Houston, but I don't think that's going to be a factor uh, come Thanksgiving. And so you now have to make plans accordingly, right? You don't want anything to do with Dallas, Washington. You don't want anything to do with Houston. You've already used them anyway, and you don't want anything to do with Detroit. But we did have a little team called the Pittsburgh Steelers lined up as a team that has not lost a game this season. Now, does that necessarily mean that they were going to win you know, and beat Baltimore for sure? Of course it wasn't the case, right? But you watch all these other teams take Pittsburgh against the Jacksonvilles, against the Dallases of the world, and now you're left with among just 20% of the population that can even use Pittsburgh. Well, of course, 100% of the population could use Washington, 100% could use Detroit, very close to 100 could use Dallas, and I think it was roughly 76% that could still use Houston, when, of course, this week that game gets canceled. And so now you go, our advantage here was that we were going to be on Pittsburgh, the biggest spread, albeit you know before the COVID stuff, three, three and a half, but still the biggest spread, the best money line of these remaining games. And as of what Wednesday morning, I go on the On Blast podcast network with Sheldon Alexander, and I talk about how I can't handicap any of these Thanksgiving games because all I want is Pittsburgh to win the game. Well, a couple hours after we taped that podcast, sure enough, news comes down that despite all of the different COVID elements this season, and listen, we could get into, you know, deep dive. I understand this one probably the most serious when it comes to the amount of people um, that will potentially have COVID from Baltimore here in the next couple of days. But you just never think that Thursday night on Thanksgiving is going to get postponed. And you know that they were going, you know, to, to not postpone that. They were trying as hard as they possibly could. And I completely understand that. This isn't going, you know, oh, the NFL shouldn't have postponed it. It's just the idea that Baltimore, not even a team that we wanted to pick, by the way, right? It'd be one thing if it was Pittsburgh. <laughs> not even a team that we wanted to pick comes down with an aggressive outbreak of COVID. And so you're going, okay, um, I was going to watch both these games cheering my heart out for Detroit and for Washington to try to knock off all of the quote-unquote fools that didn't leave themselves with Pittsburgh, right? That panicked and took Pittsburgh against Jacksonville and panicked and took Pittsburgh against Dallas and so on and so forth, right? As really popular plays. And now we're forced to pick the game. So I'm sitting there going, okay, well, we're either picking Detroit, no chance in hell, or we're picking Dallas and Washington. And we're supposed to have Dave Tooley on the podcast, but we have the technical difficulties that, you know, hit uh, Amazon uh, Web Services. And and so we don't end up having him on, but, you know, I have a 20-minute conversation with him about the game, and he's on the fence because neither one of us wanted to do, you know, be, have any part of this game. You know, I said to him, I'm like, I would lean Washington plus three, but that's just because I'm getting plus three points here. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that I think that I want to take them outright. And so we take Dallas outright on the money line or sort of as an effective money line here. But the good news is, and part of the reason we did so was because we could hedge Washington plus three and it was able to do so. So we were able to make some money on this entire venture just from a hedging standpoint. There were briefly periods where we thought we might have a middle 
situation, or at least a push potentially on plus three with Dallas being up a couple of different times, three points early on, but still, right? Or even just down four points, um, you know, a winning touchdown would put them right on three. And so you put yourself in the best position you possibly can strategically, and then something as sort of random as a game postponement slash cancellation comes up and pops up. Like, what are the odds of that? And so there's the reason I want to sort of talk about this is obviously we've been talking about it a ton up until this point, but there's a difference between strategy and handicapping, right? So I wasn't, you know, we never handicapped Dallas to win that game. We handicapped it as a game that neither of us wants anything to do with, with regards to betting the game. Same sort of deal, really, with Pittsburgh and Baltimore, except for we had a better number in the theoretical money line in that case. And so it's not like one of these deals where you go, well, I can't believe I bet on that team because it was my choice to bet on that team. We had to take a team. And in this case, we just happened to take the wrong team. But when Jalen Smith is running towards the end zone to tie the game and he's got a clear path, you know, you're still feeling pretty decent at that time. Sure, he gets caught from behind, and of course Dallas can't get it in the end zone, and then we start doing ridiculous fake punts, and you just realize, I can't believe Mike McCarthy is a head coach in this league, and how did he actually pass the interview process? So, you know, you give kudos to those who move on. You wonder how many of those were, you know, people who hadn't already used Pittsburgh and those who had, right? Did they have a strategy or was it just kind of dumb luck where they showed up on Thanksgiving having to pick between those two games, even if the Pittsburgh game had gone on? Like that was the strategy. We will take Pittsburgh. We'll take our chances with the undefeated team and other people will have to deal with these two games that we don't want any part of, but the game gets canceled and we are forced to play it. So that is brutal. Um, We executed our plan pretty well, right? Um, We wanted to use sort of a betting attitude with it and using money lines and part, you know, essentially an effective parlay for through, you know, throughout the season, parlaying a bunch of minus 400s, minus 350s, minus 450s, throw those together and come up with, you know, hopefully 18 winners at the end. And I think we would have 17 winners. We've got a lot of games here down the stretch that we had lined up. Minnesota against the Jacksonville Jaguars. Who do you think is going to win that one? How about Seattle against the Jets? Who do you think is going to win that? Late season Baltimore against the Giants is on our was on our slate. Tennessee against Detroit. Watch that game yesterday with Detroit and tell me that's not a pretty good play. So we were lined up after this. Green Bay this weekend against Chicago. Another situation where we had, you know, we were one of 20% of the of the entrants to have saved Green Bay. So while others are needing to take Cleveland on the road and the Giants on the road, we were at least going to sit back and not that Green Bay was a guarantee, but again, a home team, great money line, all of that you know, sort of system, if you will, with regards to the money lines, working out in our favor. We just had to get through Thanksgiving, and I just would have liked to seen what would happen with Pittsburgh and Baltimore. Now, that game is thoroughly bleeped up at this point. Even if Baltimore wins on Sunday which now that Lamar Jackson's out, who knows whether that game's even going to be played, all of that kind of stuff. You know, even if they ended up winning on Sunday or Pittsburgh ends up winning on Sunday, it's not like that's the same game situation that that short week Thursday night was going to be. 
And I don't even mean like because of the COVID stuff. Take all the COVID stuff out, healthy, two healthy teams, right? The spread was still going to be three, three and a half after Baltimore lost to Tennessee at home. And again, we felt pretty good. And if Pittsburgh had went and lost to Baltimore, we'd go, you know what? That's fine. That's part of the strategy. And that's just the opportunity that we weren't allowed because of this situation. So sheer dumb luck, right? Totally sucks. Total bummer. Um, We're out. But guess what? Life isn't fair. And sometimes, especially in 2020, it feels like it's sort of piling up and things could be finally going our way when it comes to a little bit of luck here. But you know what? The luck favored somebody else. And whoever ends up winning, you know, they're down to 105, which is tremendously ironic because at 105 people left, that means we tied for 106th in the contest. And you're saying, well, what's the big deal about that? My current standing in circa million right now out of 30, what, 600 people is tied for 106th. So we turn our attention to that. Uh, we were one point out of the playoff. Or it's not the playoffs. <laughs> we're one point out of the cash in circa million. So we're going to move forward with that, come up with five good picks for Sunday. In the meantime, we got to handicap these games for the weekend here. And we're going to do that starting off with, well, maybe Baltimore and Pittsburgh. And of course, Raven Steelers gets postponed all the way to Tuesday. How far do we have to postpone this for Baltimore to have their full complement of players? And again, if I was the Steelers, I would not be happy. Of course, now we have Baltimore playing the following Monday, and the Steelers still have to play the following Sunday. And so they don't even get the benefit of an extra day after that. If this line reopens, is it going back to three, three and a half? Uh, is you know Lamar Jackson still going to be able to play? All of this stuff we're going to figure out um, over the course of the weekend and into Tuesday. We'll talk about that game on Tuesday. Not going to be involved in it uh, at any time beforehand because why would we bother? Uh, Arizona and the New England Patriots here. We've got ourselves the old lily pad set, set up here. And that's where we look at a game you know, a couple of weeks ago, and it's Baltimore and New England. Nobody wants anything to do with New England, right? The world on Baltimore on the Sunday night. And, of course, Patriots win. Patriots win. Here we go. They're going on their run. You know, they're going to beat Houston, lowly Houston, right? Going on the road. Now they're a favorite against Houston. And, nope, nope, Houston wins that game. Now nobody wants anything to do with New England again. Here comes Arizona to town. Kyler Murray going to shred that bad Patriots pass defense. And sure, like that could absolutely happen for one, you know, Larry Fitzgerald, you know, obviously not where you, you know, certainly not what he used to be, but even sort of, you know, probably feels like the last year for old Lair. But from an offensive standpoint, right, like how much is that going to hurt the Cardinals? I don't know that this line move that was two and a half for the Patriots, I don't think that's Larry Fitzgerald related line move, right? As we've seen this thing tick down to one and a half, even even one in some spots. This, I think, is more just sort of sharp money realizing that the Patriots are going to be able to run the football here against the Cardinals, right? That's what we saw in that Thursday night game with Seattle for Arizona in that after Corey Peters goes down, you know, they don't have that run stopper in the middle of the lineup. And of course, what do the Patriots want to do? They want to run. Now, they showed last week that if you go out of your way to stop that, you know, Cam Newton can throw the ball a little bit, right? We've seen that a couple of different games here. So, you know, it's going to be a bit of a pick, 
pick your poison type situation here for the Patriots. Uh, no Rex Burkhead, that hurts, right? The versatility with Burkhead is kind of a killer because now they have to go back to the system of if James White's in the lineup, you know they're going to throw it. If Sony Michelle or Damian Harris are in the lineup, you know, obviously their tendency is to run the football. That being said, you know, we're looking at a team that gave up 5.3 yards per carry against Seattle. Now you look and you go, okay, but like the New England pass defense, what about that, right? But again, this is a bit of a different situation from last week where you had Houston who was able to kind of put four or five real, true, professional, quality starting wide receivers out there, which was, you know, their plan when they foolishly traded DeAndre Hopkins. And now this is now an Arizona Cardinals team that's really just got, I mean, Christian Kirk obviously is an option and certainly the best deep threat. But DeAndre Hopkins up against Stephon Gilmore, I think, is a really interesting and in some cases fair matchup, right? Two really physical guys that, um, you know, at least Stephon Gilmore has a shot to guard DeAndre Hopkins. And we've seen that if he is guarded adequately, Kyler Murray has had a tendency to look away from him. So now you're going, okay, well, who are the Cardinals going to look to? And now that it's just what Andy Isabella and Christian Kirk, while the Patriots' pass defense has been bad, in part because they just don't get pressure, this might be a situation where not getting pressure is actually a good thing because it's going to force Kyler Murray to stay in the pocket, right? You're not going to have that fleeing of the scene where things go bad quick when you're facing Kyler Murray. Now, he could sit back and he could pick off wide you know, receivers, but again, if his options are limited from that standpoint, eventually the pocket is going to wear down and sort of crumble in on him. So I expect the Patriots to sort of almost give up in a way on rushing him in a meaningful way. They're certainly, I don't think, going to blitz and then sort of just use sort of a spy technique on him and try to limit his yardage with, you know, via his legs. And so at that point, you know, sure, I bet, you know, I'd be willing to guess a lot of these drives are going to end in scores. And it really just comes down to who gets more touchdowns, you know, versus, you know, settling for a field goal. And if there's one thing that the Patriots defense has been known to do over the course of the last two decades, it's that making making you kick a field goal when you get a good drive going, right? Even at the best of times when they were shutting teams down, it was, okay, we're going to shut you down for five drives. And then the other five drives, you might get into field goal range. You might be pressured into going forward on fourth down or settling for that field goal. So I think, you know, the metrics obviously don't look great. And that's why we were against the Patriots last week. Hell, it's why we might be against them in subsequent weeks here. But I think this matchup actually kind of works out for the Patriots um, in a weird way, right? And we always kind of go back to Arizona, you know, where are the wins, right? They've got two miracles on their on their, uh, on their their resume, if you will, uh, in a six and four record, right? So this is a team that could very easily be four and six. This is a team that lost at home to the Detroit Lions, right? I know a little bit of a different version of the Detroit Lions, but again, we'll say it now, we'll say it, you know, in a few more times here. This Detroit Lions team, yikes, right? Like again, if you are going into midfield and shaking Matt Patricia's hand and going, you outcoached me, coach. Like that is brutal. Carolina and Minnesota here. No strong lean in the same way that I really like the Patriots this week. 
you know, obviously a couple of different question marks throughout the week. Adam Thielen ruled out for this one, and that's why you see this line drop from, you know, the open of about, what, four and a half, and now we're ticking down to, I think we're looking probably closer to a flat three, especially Teddy Bridgewater back. But now we've hit this point where those Teddy Bridgewater underdog stats, if you will, um, are pretty meaningless, right? We're not talking about, you know, seven plus point, you know, underdog, that kind of thing. And as much as the Vikings rely on Thielen, especially in the red zone, I think I still like Minnesota in a real bounce back spot here, a spot at home against a, you know, not very good team here. Um, that they're going to be able to move the ball on, right? Whether it's uh, Jefferson, who will be in my FanDuel, you know, DraftKings lineup this weekend, um, or obviously just going to Dalvin Cook. They're going to be able to still move the ball against this Carolina Panthers team. Panthers defense, not very good whatsoever. And offensively, you know, doesn't seem like McCaffrey's going to be in the lineup, though there is sort of some, you know, maybe he can make it into the lineup type of stuff. But you go, okay, well, they shut out Detroit, but like after watching that game on Thursday, like is anything anybody does against Detroit mean anything? And I, you know, in a way, I mean sort of positive and negative because you've got Washington, who 11 days ago lost to Detroit and almost got blown out by them. I mean, sure, they made that nice comeback to get in uh, under the number and actually tied the game late, but like, God, you know. not pretty so for me I think we're looking at a Carolina team that people love betting we've talked about this a bunch of different times this season as they were sort of trendy underdogs against Tampa Bay there was some trendiness going on with what against Chicago Um, so in this case like now you're going on a road to a a team that I still think is pretty good here and this number dipping to minus three at minus three I think it's got to be a play uh, on Minnesota Um, from a handicapping standpoint right like both teams want to take as long as they possibly can or at least accidentally take as long as they possibly can right you're gonna see a lot of runs you're gonna see extremely deliberate offense for Carolina the under might be an interesting play in this one we've got a couple of absolute mess games on the slate here the first one being Cleveland and Jacksonville and this isn't a slight of Cleveland right this isn't that like oh both teams are terrible so why do we have to watch this in this case this is Cleveland at seven and three would be really interesting in a uh, you know sort of buy low or sort of take advantage of their numbers their metrics not being very good, right? Like the num- the straight numbers people are going to look at Cleveland's offensive numbers and their output and just be like, this isn't very pretty whatsoever. You know, we've talked about Baker Mayfield in weather situations, which he has been for the last three weeks. But now you're getting him out into the warm weather, into reasonable conditions, and that offense should improve quite a bit. Problem is, from a defensive standpoint, no Miles Garrett, no Denzel Ward. There's a linebacker out. There's a handful of guys out for... Cleveland. So you go, wow, okay, Jacksonville plus the points. Maybe this is the thing. And then all of a sudden, crash, wait, is that Mike Glennon's music? Oh, God. Yes, it is. He's now getting the start. And I'm not saying that he's better, worse, or whatever from uh, our boy Jake Luton. Personally, I would have liked to see Luton going against a Cleveland defense that doesn't have Denzel Ward and and Miles Garrett, but that's not the case. We're not getting that. Uh, frankly, I would have liked to see Gardner Minshew return if I was to back Jacksonville. So, um, but no, they've got massive injuries on the secondary, the same way that they did last week. You saw how well that worked out for them against Pittsburgh. 
obviously Cleveland's offense considerably different. And sure, in theory, maybe they're, you know, these injuries aren't enough for Cleveland to take advantage of. We just kind of don't know, right? There's a lot of uncertainty right now with Cleveland's offense because we haven't really seen it in normal, fair conditions since Odell Beckham Jr. went out, right? And so, you know, how am I supposed to sort of handicap that? And we may not really know that much more after this week other than they can take advantage of a team that is without their best, you know, pass rusher in, you know, defensive end Josh Allen, or obviously the, you know, three, four, five guys that are missing in their secondary, right? So I think this is one where if you're desperate for a survivor selection, that's where you could go. For me, I'm going to tease this thing down to minus one, giving Cleveland just enough credit that they can go on the road and beat Jacksonville and at least account for a leg of a teaser there. So whether it's minus six and a half or minus seven, you can get this down obviously to one or even a half point. And I think you're in decent shape when it comes to this game. But there's just so much uncertainty that like I wouldn't be surprised obviously. And if I had to pick a, you know, the game against the spread, you like, sure, I would take Cleveland in this situation because of a lack of respect in a lot of ways for Mike Glennon. Because listen, like how great could Jacksonville feel about him, given the fact that they gave Jake Luton three starts uh, in favor of Glennon. We've definitely hit that point of the season where it's like you're just taking out the Dead Sea Scroll of the injured list and just kind of going up and down and going like who's in, who's not in. And for a lot of these games like Cleveland and Jacksonville, I just don't know who I, you know, like. Like it's really hard to get sort of a strong feeling um, at all with a lot of these games. And so this next one, Chargers and the Bills, I do actually have um, a pretty decent lean, but it's more of a system type of a situation, right? Um, Anthony Lynn, (laughs) Anthony Lynn and company as an underdog, right? Anthony Lynn playing in one possession games. And so this number five and a half, you know, did it ever touch six? I was never able to grab six. Hopefully you might've been able to, as we talked about this earlier in the week a little bit, but at plus six, that's certainly a play. We've now seen this thing tick down to five, four and a half, even four in some spots. Now, the good news is the move from five and a half to four and a half isn't exactly all that key with how rare it has become that these games ever land on four. Buffalo, you know, listen, Chargers injuries, guess what? You know, shocking, I know. But, you know, they've got a laundry list of injuries. It looks like, you know, Hayward's going to be out for the first time in a really long time. So, like, the one guy who is sort of impervious to missing games is actually going to miss games. But for Buffalo, sort of negated by the fact that John Brown's not in. Now, is John Brown their best wide receiver? No, I wouldn't even say that he's, you know, even the second best receiver because I think Beasley um, does a little bit more for them. The thing is, though, I think what John Brown does is open things up underneath for Beasley and then some of these other intermittent type passes, right? He's that second guy with digs to stretch the field. He's not out there. Things get a little bit tighter here. Now, Chargers may get Chris Harris back for the first time this season, but again, he's, you know, sort of made his hay as a slot corner. So that's a guy that like, you know, might take Beasley. You know, we get into sort of deep, the deep recesses of matchups and and that sort of thing. Um, Cody Ford, Offensive tackle, 
He's now out for the season after suffering an injury in practice. I think those two injuries for the Bills are what have kicked this down and ruined our chances, essentially, of getting six points. But it's kicked it down to four, four and a half here. And I think this is just one of those games that's a field goal either way. And I think the Chargers, as, you know, disgusting as it is, right? It's almost the same story we hear almost every week, but it's really true when it comes to them being underdogs, right? If they're a favorite, they are capable of losing, and it is worth putting something on the money line of whomever they're playing, unless it may be the Jets, in that even then, the Jets could have, would have, maybe even should have um, won that game against the Chargers, given all of the mistakes that the Chargers make on a regular basis. But as an underdog against these good teams, especially away from home, they do enough to keep it close. They do enough to take leads. Interesting little note with regards to this game. As much as I sort of like taking the points with the Chargers and like that's kind of almost an obligation here, is really interesting from a live betting standpoint. Buffalo is second in the league in first quarter scoring. So you almost expect them to take a lead. Funnily enough, though, the Chargers are fourth in the league in second quarter scoring. And so there's sort of this thing that goes, okay, like we might get this back and forth, but it might be everybody kind of owns their own quarter. Bad news for the Chargers and this potential play here is that Buffalo's fourth in the league in fourth quarter scoring and the Chargers are second last, which we talked about last week. So um, who knows how that ends up playing out? Is that anything that is necessarily predictive? No, but it is just sort of funny to see that these teams each have their own quarter that they're really good at. And the difference, and listen, it's probably a lot to do with coaching, that at the end of the game, one team's scoring a lot more than another. Uh, as far as the weather, we always want to know what's going on with Buffalo, where are they playing, and in what conditions. In this case, probably about as good as can be expected for a, will it be December by the time this rolls around? Almost December, uh, I guess not, on the 29th of November. Um, by the t- you know For late November, like this is kind of the best case they could possibly get here um, as you know relatively limited winds um, and a relatively warm day, and that helps Buffalo. But I think in this case, Chargers probably aren't looking to play a, you know, a snow game either here. So I think this one's going to be high scoring. You know, this could be this, you know, two point conversions are going to be involved in our lives here. Um, But again, two teams that are pretty banged up, but I think they're sort of equally banged up. And I think when we're talking about both these teams, it's kind of just better off to take as many points as you can possibly get, whether it's Bills being the underdog or the Chargers being the underdog. Let's be honest for, you know, sure, Buffalo should have won that last game. Yes, they're coming off a bye. Sure, the Chargers are flying cross country. All of that stuff, you know, I think is fine, except for the overlying issue here is that these teams are pretty much dead even. And one's just a little bit better at closing games than the other one. Or in, in or maybe it's just a lot better. But that might end up just being, you know, one team being up three points and being able to get it done or blowing it entirely. And I think in the case of the Chargers, you wouldn't be all that surprised if that were the case. But would you be all that surprised if the Chargers won this game outright? I think if you polled a few Bills fans, they wouldn't be. So I think this one is looking to be on the old money line parlay come Sunday. Vegas and the Falcons. Las Vegas goes to Atlanta here. And this one's pretty simple. Talked about it on Tuesday, right? The look ahead line of a pick'em. And now we see Falcons lose to the Saints when a lot of people, including myself, thought that they would play a lot better and they would score a little bit more 
and they don't. And of course, now everybody goes, oh, same old Falcons, right? But again, is it? Maybe, you know, point is, though, they go from road game at New Orleans, a pretty good team, especially good defense. And that was really the issue when it came to the Falcons, right? The Falcons played pretty well defensively against Taysom Hill. They were just on the field a ton. Right, so now they go home and they get the Raiders. Pretty good offense too, right? And so um, I don't know that this is necessarily going to be like Falcons shut them down. No, I just think that this, not unlike the Chargers and the Bills, I think that the Falcons are going to have a lot better time of it when it comes to scoring in the red zone, right? Like just that type of thing. That if they were able to score touchdowns in the red zone last week, they would have had 21 first half points. But they didn't, and they couldn't. And so it only ended up being, what, nine first half points. And so um, for me here, now that we see this line up to three because the Raiders get a ton of credit for hanging in with the Chiefs where the defense still didn't really show up, right, for the Raiders. Like that's what we're waiting for, and that's what we're sort of basing a lot of our handicaps on the Raiders, whether it's Denver, whether it's whatever the Chargers, like you can move the ball on this Raiders team and the Falcons are going to be able to do that. Obviously, Julio Jones is the main issue here for the Falcons on and whether I would be that excited about betting the Falcons. And I use the term excited as if that would ever be the case that I'd be excited about betting the Falcons. Um, but for me, this is just two quarterbacks against secondaries and pass defenses that just aren't very good, right? 6.0 yards per pass against, or excuse me, yards per play um, with the Raiders, 6.4 for the Falcons here. Uh, we've talked about how that's been improved, right? Talked last week in the handicapping with the Saints and nothing that happened in the last game against the Saints really sort of talked me out of the Falcons being better defensively. I think that is still the case. They just had to deal with this real unknown here, right? Like a full game of Taysom Hill doing all of his crazy trick plays and, all, and like he's running, is he not running? What are they, what's the plan here? What's the plan there? And so obviously you can prepare a little bit easier for Derek Carr. You don't need to see like one play from the last 15 games that Taysom Hill was involved. You've got a ton of stuff on Derek Carr. Now, do I necessarily trust the Falcons defense uh, and their coaching to sort of be able to take anything from that? And certainly the defense is at times scary enough that the Raiders may just go up and down uh, on the Falcons. But I wouldn't be stunned if it were sort of the other way around as well, where of course the Falcons are going up and down as well. Now, I wouldn't, I shouldn't say that I wouldn't make this bet because I've already made this bet at plus three. I just think that um, knowing whether Julio Jones is in the lineup could be relatively important, but if he gets announced that he's in the lineup and that he is quote unquote healthy, I think this number might come off of three. And I think even in his absence, we've seen the Falcons against bad defenses still be good enough to move the football, whether it's using Zacharias or uh, Gage was in, it was in the mix. I don't even know if he's still even in the mix anymore. Um, but there's just sort of, you know, a plug and play type of thing here. If the defensive secondary is bad enough that you're going up against. And I think the Raiders actually qualify in that department, right? What do the Raiders want to do? Well, they want to run the football. Like the only thing that the Falcons do okay defensively, even at the worst of times was they do okay against the run here, right? And so, um, let's keep an eye on the Julio Jones thing. If you want to make the bet at plus three, I'm full onto that. Whether it is a best bet, sort of big bet type of thing, you know, we'll have to decide that come Sunday morning. 
based on a little bit more information with regards to the injuries in this one. But from a straight value standpoint, Atlanta plus three, given the fact that last week, Pickham was the line here. Um, you know, again, I don't know anything that happened last week necessarily changes anybody's perception of either of these teams. And so I think we're getting a couple of free points here, um, especially on the key number of three. Garbage game number two on the board. And this one's getting a little bit spicier than Cleveland and Jacksonville. This one's actually um, probably literally a garbage game. Miami and the New York Jets here. This number at a full seven all week is sort of ticking off of that right now. Now you have to pay a price here. And the price you have to pay is for the Jets, right? We're looking at minus 120 or so um, for the full seven on the Jets. Now, that's, I think, due to the fact that Sam Darnold is back. And you know how I feel about the Jets with Sam Darnold. Slightly better than I do when they've got Joe Flacco, right? This is by no means exciting. But again, you're still looking at this team that is still looking for their first win, right? And whether, you know, sure, we've seen a couple of 0-16 teams here in recent memory, right? But there was a point for a long time there where... Teams desperately wanted to avoid being lumped in with like the only team that had ever gone, you know, winless in an entire in an entire season, right? So these teams are in theory still really trying their hardest out there. And so when it comes to the Jets, we get Sam Darnold back. And what is the thing that they've always sort of, you know, we've heard all season long, Sam Darnold's never had all of his quote unquote weapons. And we always sort of sarcastically joke about that because like Rashad Perriman is in the category of his quote-unquote weapons. But Perriman has made two long touchdown catches in the last two games, so we have to give him credit for being weaponry at this point, right? Denzel Mims, Jameson Crowder, you know, to a lesser extent, uh, Herndon, the tight end, who, you know, if he wants to, he could make a catch once in a while, but most of the time he's just dropping things. Um, and then, of course, not much in the backfield. But this is finally Sam Darnold's chance here with all the weapons around him to be able to move the ball here a little bit against Miami. Now you sit and you go, wait, the Miami defense, like I thought they were good, right? They are opportunistic, but more than they are necessarily quote unquote good. And when we look at teams trying to pull off a big upset, who, you know, listen, if it's a big upset, it probably means we're not that thrilled about their offense. We're not that thrilled about the quarterback. In this case, sure, Sam Darnold will and, you know, might and probably will throw a bunch of interceptions. That wouldn't shock anybody, now would it, right? But what, we, what we're looking for when we look for a team that's going to pull off an upset is, can they do the easiest thing possible and have success doing that? And that, of course, is running the football right? Any quarterback can turn to his side and hand the ball off to someone. Now, the bad news for the Jets is that someone is Frank Gore and he's 100 years old. But if you're, play if you're going up against one of the worst run defenses in the league, and this is a team that's sort of low-key bad at run, you know, run defense, but we talked about this last week with Denver, and we, we hit the nail right on the head there, right? We were thinking, okay, how is Denver going to stay in this game? How can we cover a three-and-a-half-point spread? Well, Denver essentially wins by what would have been two touchdowns if Melvin Gordon didn't fumble the ball on the one-yard line, right? And so we didn't you know, we were 17 points clear if he just crosses the goal line. 
from our design target. And so we didn't necessarily need Denver to run for 200 yards on Miami last week. We just happened to get that, right? And so at this point, Drew Locke and Sam Darnold are pretty similar quarterbacks. Now you wish Sam Darnold was a little bit further along, given the fact that he's been there basically twice as long uh, as a starter than Drew Locke has, but is what it is. And so in this case, yes, it's Frank Gorn. He's not going to bust the long runs necessarily that like a Melvin Gordon, you know, I think he had a 20 yard run. Of course, Philip Lindsay's always kind of motoring. Don't know why he doesn't get more run in that Broncos offense. And so sure, it's not going to be as explosive, but is it going to be able to move the ball here, right? I think that they can move the ball. Tricky thing is for Miami, and we talked about that offense last week, going into that game, right? What was the thing that we said about Miami's offense? It's that it was at a Denver Broncos level efficiency with Tua behind center, right? And everybody's like, what? That's crazy, but it's true. Like, that's what the numbers say with regards to their offense with Tua. And sure enough, they were awful. They got shut down by the Denver Broncos defense. Now, I'm not saying that the Jets defense is the same level or even close, right? But is Tua going to be able to take advantage of their bad pass defense to, you know, again, we talked about it last week, right? Missing one of their key guys in Preston Williams. Now you've got a Devontae Parker focus here. And listen, do the Jets have good enough guys to be able to have a focus, you know, and, and do anything about that? The answer's probably not really. Uh, and then the tricky thing is, what if Tua does struggle again, right? I think we're looking at probably a quick hook potentially here with Ryan Fitzpatrick coming in. So as much as I want to be like, money line, here we go, and I think I still will, to be honest with you, just from a value standpoint, right? We're looking at like plus 240 here for the Jets on the money line, maybe even higher come Sunday. This just feels like that game that people are going to throw in their teasers. And maybe that game was, you know, the, the uh, uh, excuse me, the Browns. Maybe that, you know, maybe it's the Browns losing to the Jags here. But I can't really make a case for the Jags to win that game. I can make a case for the Jets to win that game, right? Like they don't. For as much as we, you know, slag Adam Gase and it's well-deserved, like the team does not give up, right? They do a bunch of dumb stuff when they're poorly coached, but they don't give up, right? They they fought. They could have easily gotten blown, blown out by the Chargers there last week, lost by 30 points, and nobody would have said a word, right? Everybody would just shrug and said, Jets being the Jets. But we've looked at this team and they did everything that they could in their power, which again, isn't all that much, but they did everything in their power to come back and try to win that game. And maybe if they get a flag at the end there on that long Joe Flacco pass, you know, down to like the inside the five, you know, again, maybe they do tie that game and go to overtime. And now we're looking at a team, whether or not they win or lose, you know, that's a team that went to overtime and probably should have gone to overtime at least against the Patriots uh, a couple of weeks before that. And so this team, as sort of <laughs> incremental as it looks, is getting slowly better and better. Unfortunately, it's still just not very good. But if you're going to catch the Dolphins at their low, which again, might have been last week and we caught them there, but maybe there isn't that much improvement on a week-to-week basis. And we do get a Broncos-level offensive performance for... Miami here, and again, the Broncos almost fell victim and probably should have fell victim to the Jets way back when, when we last saw Sam Darnold, by the way, right? When that Jets team, as bad as they are, put up 30 points in a game against Denver, a team that Miami just played, right? So there is some sort of connection there in all of this that sort of goes, okay, these all three of these teams, Denver, Miami, 
and the Jets might not be all that different from each other. And I'm not saying like, oh, the Jets are good and Miami, or even that Miami's not good necessarily. I'm just saying, again, are, is Miami going to get another touchdown in the first quarter, right? Because we talked about the Bills being a really good first quarter team. They are literally, the Dolphins are literally the second highest scoring first quarter team in the league. And that's because they keep getting these defensive touchdowns, right? Whether it was against the Rams, right? Strip, 75 yard, 80 yard return, right? Uh, Kyler Murray, strip, 25, 30 yard return. Punt block against the Chargers, and, you know, immediate score, short, you know, shorthanded interception. Um, I should say short field interception against the Broncos every single week, right? And we're going to keep, you know, going over and over with this every week. And maybe it just involves us fading the, the, the Dolphins every week because we're going, well, they can't possibly get an early first quarter touchdown without actually doing anything on offense, can they? And then, of course, they do. And, of course, listen, the Jets just served one up to the Chargers last week and about as easy of a pick six as you possibly can. So it's not like they're not capable, right? But if you want to, feel free to bet first quarter defensive score or something along those lines. Maybe it'll cash and maybe we're completely wrong here. But I'm not going to base a handicap on that, uh, you know, for this game just entirely on that premise. And so uh, we're getting seven points, even if that all happens, right? Even if they spot them seven points right off the bat, we're still playing at a level playing field the rest of the way in a game that I think the Jets have a chance to win from, you know, an outside, at least an outside chance, I should say. Um, 5.8 yards per play to 5.9 yards per play. Like these are teams here that like Miami is still getting credit for being a lot better than they actually are here. So I'm throwing the Jets into the Moneyline Parlay this weekend. And plus seven is a number that I like a ton here. And it's and it seems like it's going down to six and a half with the uh, involvement of Darnold here. The only thing that's going to scare me is if Fitzpatrick comes in and starts doing Fitz magic-y type things. But I think the only way that Fitzpatrick comes in is if the Jets are leading and Miami's down. Right? Like he's not going to come in if they've got a three point lead throughout the game, which still kind of puts us in a nice spot there potentially for covering a relatively big number on the road. Junk game number three, the Giants and the Bengals. And this is really more in the category, right, of Cleveland and Jacksonville, where we don't really know what to do here. So fundamentally, we go, we break it down. We go, okay, what was the look ahead line? Look ahead line is three, three and a half for Cincinnati. That was with Joe Burrow. That made a bunch of sense because again, you know, everybody loves Joe Burrow, right? Um, that being said, things have changed, right? <laughs> Joe Burrow's out and we go to Brandon Allen. And I had a fun sort of exchange with Sheldon Alexander on the On Blast podcast that we do every Thursday, but in this case, Wednesday. Um, and I asked him, I was like, okay, career starts. How many starts has Brandon Allen ever made? And he said, he guessed zero. And the answer is three. And they all came last season. And the most forgettable starts you could probably ever have, except for um, a couple of different reasons. One, he got in, first of all, he was on the Broncos, by the way. Um, Mid-season starts with the Broncos. Started against the Browns at home in Denver, and they got the victory. He actually played relatively well. Next game, first half at Minnesota. The Broncos go up 20 to nothing before absolutely caving in the second half, giving up three touchdowns in the fourth quarter, and having Minnesota win the game outright. And then the third and final game in Buffalo, 
Allen and the Broncos offense muster a total of three points and get blown out by the Bills. And so it really went off a cliff in a hurry here. So totally small sample size, but kind of a funny pattern in that like once they started coming back at the half in that second game, it was all over for the Brandon Allen era in Denver. And as much as he started three games, they clearly didn't bring him back, right? They clearly didn't desire to bring Brandon Allen back into the fold. It's not like he performed well enough that some other team was like, you need to be our backup quarterback because he ended up on the Bengals practice squad uh, behind Ryan Finley. And of course, Ryan Finley was so bad last week that they've turned to Brandon Allen. And is this going to be one of those situations where we get the you know, team just lost their starting quarterback or their star player and is going to give it 110% in this next game. I kind of don't think we're going to get that. Just based on sort of reading the tea leaves about what's going on over in Cincinnati and this, a lot of sort of, uh, I think they figured out basically that Zach Taylor sucks as a coach. Uh, and there may be a little bit of mutiny, right? We saw the Carlos Dunlap um, listing his house on Twitter <laughs> talking about uh, before he'd even been traded. Um, all of these sorts of things with the veteran players. And I feel like Joe Burrow is kind of holding all of that stuff together and keeping that going. Now, maybe Brandon Allen has that first game that he had against Cleveland where you know, to everyone's surprise, they win, right? Like, isn't Cleveland from last year pretty similar to the Giants from this year? I guess maybe not because Freddie Kitchens was involved last year, but you've got a legitimate coach when it comes to the Giants here. So maybe this is, you know, I think a lot of people are talking about like the sneaky survivor pick. I think this one's worth also throwing together with Cleveland and just going, okay, this line moved to five and a half, off of three, we could sit around and pretend that we can, you know, come up with some sort of reasonable number that is the difference between whichever quarterback goes, right, Finley or Allen, and Joe Burrow, right? Is it 10 points? Like, it doesn't feel like 10 points, you know, that seems a little high. Uh, That seems like a lot of points from one quarterback to the next, that being said, like, are you really looking to back the Bengals here? I'm certainly not, right? They don't even have Joe Mixon to sort of lean on here. And so I think this just has to be a stay away. And instead of messing around trying to figure out point spreads and what it should be, what it shouldn't be, and like requiring the Giants, you know, who are, again, the Giants, uh, requiring them to all of a sudden cover a number against a professional football team, albeit a, you know a team that has a quarterback that we're not exactly thrilled with. But again, at least it's not Ryan Finley. It's at least a guy who played and got a win in the NFL last season. So in theory, like it could be not that bad. But I would just rather tease this thing down, get it at essentially pick him here, you know, six and a half down to a to a half point, uh, and just sort of hope that the Giants off their bye week can get enough business done here against a team that isn't, uh, you know, in the NFC East, that isn't Washington, that isn't Philadelphia, um, but that might be just as bad, right? The Bengals defense, just absolutely horrific. Um, You do have that sort of trend that I'm not sure, you know, maybe you're aware of that road favorites off of a buy is actually a really good bet in the NFL for some of the more obvious reasons. Um, you know, obviously preparation time, the travel's not that big of an issue, et cetera, et cetera. So that's my plan with that. I'm throwing that in the old teaser bucket and, uh, you know,
you know, not overcommitting to the Giants, not asking them to do anything completely ridiculous when it comes to more than just winning the game in this case. Tennessee and Indy, as we keep it going on this one o'clock slate, that as if the NFL just did not learn anything from the last couple of weeks and separating these games. We've got a billion games early and just a few of them late. This is brutal. Um, as mentioned, Tennessee and Indy here, this line opens at four for Indy. And it was almost so high that you sort of had to feel like something was up. And that's where we're at here in 2020, where when there's an you know unusual line, something that seems irregular, you go, okay, who's got, who's got the vid? Who's got it? And you're scrolling, you're scrolling, and you're searching, you know, Ryan Tannehill contact tracing, and it's just nothing's coming up. And you're like, why is this four? And then by the time you look, it's, oh, it's down to three and a half. And then boom, it's down to three. And you go, oh, okay. So I just missed out on them just making a really bad line, which in the NFL almost never happens because we have this system in place where we throw look ahead lines up the week before at small limits. And, you know, people can bet those. And if the line is atrocious, then that number is going to get bet down. And in this case, that didn't really happen. You have these two teams coming off of the same situation, right? These sort of comeback wins. Um, Colts a little bit more dramatic, especially being at home. But of course, Tennessee, you know, burgeoning rivalry all of a sudden with the Ravens. They go and they win in overtime doing Tennessee type things. And so it's sort of a double letdown here. So there isn't sort of a spot situation where you go, okay, well, this one team's going to have a letdown. The other team doesn't. They both in theory could. But let me tell you why one team is going to be more affected than the other. First and foremost, let's look at the wins that they had, right? Like the Tennessee win against Baltimore as a comeback was a very much legitimate win, right? It was their game plan, right? They set it up that going, okay, we're going to stay in this game like we always do. Second half is going to be the Derrick Henry half where he just runs over everybody. And that's how we get our offense going, right? Sometimes that works out. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes we get too far behind like we did in the case of Pittsburgh. And even then, Right, we came back and had a field goal to send that to overtime. We had a couple of throws into the end zone that would have won the game even before that. And so like that's still part of their plan, right? And you see that in overtime, nobody wanting anything to do with Derrick Henry, you know, as they win that game when they didn't even need the touchdown. Um, but thankfully for Tennessee, they didn't bother or they didn't need to uh, attempt a field goal given their issues uh, kicking. Meanwhile, with Indianapolis, we go, you know, going into that game, you saw that line and you're like this seems fishy. Why is everybody on Green Bay? Not why is everybody in Green Bay, but why, because everybody's on Green Bay, is this line not moving down towards Green Bay? Like they, sh this should be a pick em, given sort of the sentiment out there about this, you know, all the value on Green Bay. And then they come out and they have this big, you know, first half and they take this lead and you're like, yeah, okay. So like the, you know, when I was making the case for the Colts or was trying to make the case for the Colts it involved, you know, uh, you know, possession of the ball and using, you know, the tight ends and running the football. And they just didn't have any success with that in the first half. And then in the second half, they go and they are able to have success. And you see that Rodgers isn't able to do anything. And they're all out of sorts offensively, right? Even late, you know, sure, they get the amazing, the classic Rodgers 50-yard pass to you know, sort of get them um, almost to field goal range and, of course, subsequently into field goal range. But the point is, is that the Colts win this game off of four turnovers, and we always know, right, if we could go into the future and ask one question about a football game that's happened, we would ask who won the turnover battle. We would be content with knowing that if we went back in time to where we are today and placed the bet. 
right? And if you had said, oh, Packers didn't turn the ball over four times, I'm going to say to you, oh, okay, well, the Colts win and probably relatively easy. In this case, no, it actually took overtime in the same way that it did for the Titans, except for the Titans didn't have to have four turnovers in their favor from a Green Bay-level offense in order to just barely win the game, right? So is Tennessee going to turn over the ball that much? I would say probably not, given that they are literally in the top three of teams that don't turn the ball over. And now, problem is, right, you've seen this game before. You've seen it like two weeks ago, slightly more than two weeks ago. And you go, okay, well, Colts won. They actually dominated the box score. We went into that at length after that Thursday night game. And it's very easy to go, okay, yeah, but they, you know, the punt uh, got blocked and, you know, like the other punt was shanked and now they've gotten, you know, the Titans have gotten rid of that punter and that's really great for them. And in a way that, you know, does make some sense, right? Like you're, you're probably not going to get that horrific punting situation. And as much as the Indy dominated that game from a box score, you know, yardage standpoint, doing so, they still were only up three points. So, if you can promise me again that the Colts are going to dominate the box score, like again, I will happily take the Colts. So I don't even need to know about the turnover margin. But there's no guarantee now that we're starting at zero again that they're going to have that discrepancy, whether it's turnovers or whether it's yardage, right? I expect this to be a much more evenly played game. I think the conditions inside the dome actually help out Tennessee a lot more, right? Like a little bit of a faster track for Henry. Like he's still just as tough to tackle indoors as he is outdoors. Um, Phil Rivers is a guy who like actually kind of rather you have playing outside because it just means everything is going to be a complete bleep show and it's not like perfect conditions for both guys are really going to improve Rivers any more than he already is because he's already kind of throwing floaters out there and throwing to different spots and you know it kind of doesn't really matter um, what the conditions are for him for Tannehill with that big arm you know AJ Brown fast track for that guy like I think this game is just really really evenly matched and I think that's why you're seeing this number go from four down to three and when you look at this, you know, the number the first time around, it was Tennessee minus one, minus one and a half even, right? Because I believe we ended up getting a teaser for like plus seven and a half, even maybe even plus eight. And the line moved for the Colts down to across uh, Pickham to the Colts even being sort of a small favorite here. You're seeing the opposite happen here. And I think fundamentally it's because home field in whether it's Tennessee or Indianapolis just doesn't mean anything. And so these teams are probably, maybe the Colts are one point better, maybe they're two points better. But I don't think they're a full three points better. And that might seem like a small thing, but when we're talking about a key number of three, like we're not talking about, oh, is, are they 11 points better or 14 points better? Like we're talking about really getting into the nitty gritty here where like one point really, really matters, especially if it's on or off of three. And for this to come all the way down and land back on three here, I think it's a pretty good indication that this number in the first place was wrong. And obviously the market has pounded the wrongness out of it, if you will. But I think there's still some value as this sits on three because the other thing is it's not going to go to two and a half because sportsbooks aren't going to allow themselves to get middled on an incredibly common number like Colts winning this game by three is going to happen a ton of the time and so they're not going to open this at four put it down to three and a half have everybody a winner on three and have this thing go all the way through to two and a half and then have all the Colts people come in and bet this at two and a half and have this run 
right on and land right on three and just have them get absolutely smoked, right? They rather just have this sit three and if they're wrong, they're wrong, they'll live to see another day, right? We're gonna screw a bunch of other games up here as a public betting you know, consortium out here that they don't need to worry all that much. But if they do need, what they need, do need to worry about is having one game basically, you know, everybody winning on that one game um, and losing just an absolute ton of money here. So I think that's a bit of a regret on their part um, from a football standpoint, right? DeForest Buckner goes out, you know, COVID related, that's going to make things a lot easier for the offensive line for Tennessee, right? So if you're worried about the offensive line for Tennessee, which of course we kind of always are based on a lot of the injuries and stuff that have happened, um, looks like they're going to get a little bit healthier this week, but you go, okay, well, what's the defensive line situation that they're matching up against? And if it's a team that's not that great, not going to be a big deal. And the Colts, by and large, pretty good. That being said, they're now out three guys that start on that defense, right? No big names, no Darius Leonard is obviously the guy that we always circle and go, okay, if he's not playing, that's a really big deal. But this is going to be a relatively depleted indie defense. So you've got this game that, again, I think is just going to be a kind of shootout level type game. We saw certainly a fair amount of yards and a fair amount of points in that Thursday game. Now you bring it indoors. Now you bring it under the fast track in Indy. And I think um, this thing's got shootout written all over it. I'll take Tennessee plus three because I think they can win this game outright. Um, Titans can win this. Moneyline is definitely going to be in the mix here. Um Again, hopefully we get more guys back for Tennessee if that's the case. But I think as long as the important guys are there, this is going to be one that's going to look a lot like last week against Green Bay. And if that's the case, right, having plus three in our pocket is a pretty good number to have. Hey gang, pardon the interruption, but I've got to do a quick ad for this podcast. Normally at the end of each show, I'll mention to subscribe, rate, and review the pod offhandedly. And if you have done all three things, then you're a rock star. If not, could you? It helps. But also, if you enjoy the content, whether it's saving you from following the lemmings over the cliff with that short road favorite, or the various guests, or whatever reason, could you do me a favor to help grow the show by telling a friend, or even an enemy? One share with someone you talk sports with can go a long way to help build our little community. It would be greatly appreciated. Now, let's get back to the betting talk. Let's get into the late afternoon games here in New Orleans and Denver. Now, on the surface here, and this is actually kind of the fundamental here, and it's not all that much different from the Las Vegas Atlanta game. Um except for one thing, right? Like the Las Vegas Atlanta, we feel like Atlanta's got, you know, good value there, a plus three because the local headline was pick them. Lookalike headline in this one isn't that far off from the six that New Orleans is currently laying right now. My own personal numbers, and this is as far off as I've been on this week and maybe over the last few weeks, have Denver uh, three and a half, plus three and a half, certainly not favored by three and a half. And so fundamentally here, this I think this is maybe an overreaction to... New Orleans looking okay with Taysom Hill, like everything's going to be fine. Um, I'd be surprised if he's as good throwing the football in the you know elevation, a uh, little bit colder, right? Basically outside of the friendly confines of the Superdome here, right? So I think there has to be something to that. I don't think that you can ever make this number seven or seven and a half and expect the Saints to kind of cover that. I think the fact that this is just sort of sitting right below seven makes it attractive enough to people to bet the Saints 
Now, problem is, last week we sort of came up with the script for Denver to beat Miami, right? Run the football, make it easier on Drew Locke. I don't know that that's going to be the case here for the Broncos. They're not going to run the ball for 200 yards against the Saints, right? Maybe if the Saints just kind of don't feel like it, just kind of phone one in, they are sort of due for one of those games. They kind of tried to do that two weeks ago against San Francisco, right? By only having 200 and some odd yards on offense, taking advantage of a couple of muff punts, et cetera, et cetera. That being said, I look at it and I go, okay, well, yeah, Denver you know, had 200 yards rushing last week, but they won the game, like I said, essentially by two scores. It ended up being one score, but again, from a yardage standpoint, it should have been two scores. So they don't need they don't need to win this game, right? They're they're six point underdogs. They can lose this game by three, four, whatever points. This could be twenty one to seventeen. This could be twenty one to sixteen, and we're all going to be fine with it, right? From a plus six standpoint. So as maybe as strange as this sounds, I don't like them as much to win this game, even with the increase in money line price, right? Like the quote unquote value is obviously better as a six point underdog than it was last week as a three and a half point underdog. I just think that this is another under game, right? We talked about last week. This is a game, I always joke, like somebody is scoring 19 points. Last week, I think it was, I think Denver got to 20, right? I think it was 2013 um, was the final. And so this is another one. I think somebody's getting 19 points. Maybe that ends up being 20. I don't know. But the point is, is that if, if it's, we're capping it at 20, one, obviously there's gonna be some value to the under potentially, and two, six points is a ton of points if the winning team is getting 19 points at or around, right? And so I think this is this is certainly still going to be a play for me at plus six because one, I'm definitely not betting New Orleans minus six. This is a game that the Saints don't even really need all that much, especially after watching the Bucks lose. Um, it's one that they could easily just kind of phone their way through here. Uh, and then there's the element of with all the kind of gadgetry offense type Sean Payton-y stuff, he's very capable or incapable, depending on how you look at it. He's very capable of like coming up with some dumb play that just fails miserably, right? Like a double reverse deal where like Hale starts with it, but he also ends up with it at the end or he's supposed to because they've thrown it back and forth a couple of times, all of that kind of stuff, right? This is a very similar game to me with obviously the exception of the fact that Hill is in and not Drew Brees, but this feels like the game at, on the road to Chicago where the Broncos still may have a chance late. I don't need this to go to overtime. Let's just keep this thing or get this thing within six points and call it a day. I like Denver here plus the six. Um, again, we know relatively little here about Taysom Hill, given that we've seen only him in sort of perfect conditions that there isn't a ton to sort of handicap, right? Like, oh, okay, like he could do this, he could do that. Like for me, I just want to see in a different environment if he's capable of the plays that they seem to run for him more often at home or indoors than they do when they're on the road, right? The on the road plays, there's a lot of, okay, we'll bring him in just to run here, right? Like there's not a lot of quirks to it. Uh, the throwing plays that they run for him are pretty much always at home, which is, of course, because of the controlled conditions. So give me Denver plus six here as we've upped the ante for requirements for the Saints to cover. Next up, San Francisco and the LA Rams here. This number started at seven is down to six and a half. And I have to say, 
I fully agree with this move. Um, not surprised at all. This is the old, this is this, I mean, anything really involving the NFC West, but like these are the throw out the records when these two teams play type of situation, right? Talked about it a little bit on Tuesday, I think here. So you know where I'm going with this. Um, it's the classic NFC West, right? San Francisco kind of owns the Rams. The Rams kind of own the Seahawks. The Seahawks kind of own the Cardinals. The Cardinals kind of own San Francisco. And obviously what I mean by that is from a cover standpoint, right? Like even last year, Arizona was playing tight games with San Francisco, even as sort of double-digit type underdogs here, right? And this is kind of that situation where you have this elevated spread of a full seven points where it's now down to six and a half where you go okay like san francisco it's been rough right they are banged up they have been all year right like kittle not walking through that door jimmy g not walking through that door but you are coming off a of bye week on a team that's very well coached especially from an offensive standpoint right so nick mullins if that's the concern we watched Nick Mullins play against the Saints and that the scripted plays, right? That first 15, the first two drives down the field, guy looked like Joe Montana, right? Slinging it all over the Saints. We had the Saints in Survivor, RIP, the Survivor entry. And, you know, we're like, oh my God, we're going to lose to Nick Mullins on the road. This is going to be ridiculous. Oh my God. Now, I don't know enough about sort of the NFL and its inner workings to know whether Nick Mullins is going to have a script of 25 plays or whatever. I'd like to think that over the course of two weeks, he will have expanded his playbook that he's comfortable with and that they're able to execute. It looks like, and don't hold me to this, we'll reevaluate this on Sunday, but it looks like we may have Raheem Mostert back, right? Off of IR you know, questionable, you know, you're not going to designate him as like, he's definitely back, he's definitely in. Seems like they have done that with Debo Samuel, right? Another guy critical to the operation. Brandon Ayuk obviously had a nice game against the Saints. So you've got those two guys able to do the fun San Francisco-y type things that they want to do. You're getting Mostert back. Again, if he's full speed, and I say that, you know, on purpose, because that guy's so bleeping fast that from an offensive standpoint, right, in this game, the Jimmy G to Nick Mullins thing, I don't think is going to have that big of an impact, right? Because again, Jimmy G, frankly, not that good in the first place. So, you know, what kind of matchups are we looking to get Nick Mullins involved in? Are we looking to get Nick Mullins in a game where we need him to win by 10 points? No, we're not. We're not even really looking for Nick Mullins in games that are pickums that, you know, both teams come in sort of on a level playing field here and we're just trying to win a big game, uh, you know, in the standings. We're not really even there for that. We're just trying to get Nick Mullins in a situation where he doesn't get blown out, where this game ends up being, you know, 21 to 17, 21 to, you know, 15, something crazy like that. Um from the Rams standpoint, defensively or just in general, right? You've got that Monday night game flying high off of going to Tampa Bay, beating Tom Brady on Monday night football, all of that stuff. Like that is a classic letdown spot, right? Whether that actually comes to fruition, whether it's clear that they're, you know, feeling that letdown situation, we'll never know, right? Like that's purely sort of narrative um, eye test maybe uh, when it all comes down to it type stuff. But what we do know is uh, Micah Kaiser, their leading tackler, their linebacker is out for this game. And there's a handful of teams where maybe that doesn't matter all that much. But in a team that you know prides itself on sideline to sideline and misdirection 
and testing over the middle, right, with linebacker, excuse me, with tight ends on linebackers, with fullbacks on linebackers, and with running backs coming out of the backfield, right? Short throws. If if we're not expecting that much from Nick Mullins, we are Nick Mullins, we are expecting him to throw short passes to running backs and let them yards after catch, right? Whether that's, you know, again, Mostert, whether that's Debo Samuel, whether that's Ayuk, the whole offense is predicated on yards after catch. And if your top tackler is not in the game and the entire game plan for the other team's offense is to avoid getting tackled like it's not that complicated that that might be a really big thing when it comes to the Rams other thing we talk about with the Rams their keys right Aaron Donald causing a full-blown disturbance right well if you can run run Aaron Donald that's the way you take it at Aaron Donald, right? There's, you've, I don't know if you've seen it, but like there's all this sort of debate about whether Aaron Donald's even remotely good defensively against the run, right? He gets himself out of position. This is a team that wants to drag people out of position. That's what they do from a passing standpoint. They want to throw to the outside. They want to get the ball out of Nick Mullins' hands quickly to take Aaron Donald out of the game. From a wide receiver standpoint, who do you put Jalen Ramsey on, right? Sure, very effective against the DK Metcalfs, the Mike Evanses of the world, right? But what do they do? He's, you know, he goes up against Debo Samuel and Debo Samuel's running a jet sweep behind the line and all of a sudden, like, you know, Jalen Ramsey's success and his strength is completely, you know, negated, right? So who are they going to put him on and what's he going to do, right? They could just throw Bourne over on Jalen Ramsey and just have Bourne run him up and down the field the whole time. Like that's the key element here for the Rams defense that they, maybe this is why they struggle against San Francisco because their defense is designed to stop teams that do things like say the Bucks do things or like that the Seahawks you know, the way that they do things. But San Francisco does things so differently that a guy like Jimmy G can take them to the Super Bowl because the quarterback position, relatively speaking, just isn't that important. Now, if he makes a bunch of dumb throws and throws balls directly at people, then okay, fine. We're probably not going to win this game. We're not probably not even going to cover the spread here. But at seven, or in this case, even six and a half, for a game where, listen, I mean, San Francisco had a really good season last year, so it's not surprising that they swept the Rams. But again, that have won three straight against the Rams and have shut them down from an offensive you know, yardage and yards per play standpoint. There's just nothing about this Rams team that's any different that I would expect them to have all kinds of crazy success offensively. So if the 49ers can still just hold them to the usual 5.5 or so yards per play, I think that they're going to be just fine in kind of hanging out and have a chance to actually win this game. So this one is going to actually show up as well on the Moneyline Parlay, just kind of rolling with this theory that we have in general about the NFC West. Finally, from a metric uh, box score, you know, predictive measuring type of thing here, two things that we always try to look at to see if there's a massive discrepancy, and that's uh, turnover rate, and red zone effectiveness, right? Because those obviously turnovers mean you're cutting a, a play, uh, excuse me, a uh, drive short and probably giving the other team pretty good field position or at least killing your own good field position. And when it comes to the red zone, right, if you're really good at converting for touchdowns and they're only getting field goals, you're getting four points at a time there. 
in this case, both teams exactly the same in both metrics. It's kind of funny to see that they're the same red zone conversion rate and they're the same turnover margin as well. So again, I think this game is closer than seven. I think obviously the line coming down to six and a half indicates that I'm probably on the right track with this. Plus six and a half, also a good enough bet. But let's see. Let's just wait and see if this game ticks back to seven. Maybe we get uh, Richard Sherman back as well. That's going to help San Francisco's defense um, on top of that as well. Next up, the big game in the afternoon, and it's Kansas City and Tampa Bay. And this one I've wrestled with all week long because this does feel like that sort of sharp square type game, right? And each week there's, you know, two, three, four of these type of games where you sort of go, okay, in this case, right, Kansas City is basically involved all the time. And it's, you know, with Kansas City, it's either, is this too many points because they're laying like double digits against a functional team? Or in the case last week, eight full points on the road against Las Vegas. Or you go like, is this a spot where they can get beat? And so when you look at this line and it opens three and a half and you go, that's too high because we, as a group, even watching that game on Monday, we think, yeah, like Tampa Bay's still good, right? And I go, yeah, like, oh, it sucks that we're going to have to bet. You know, I just say like, oh, we have to bet plus three and a half. And it's interesting because the, the, as long as the week goes, I go, but do we, like, do we have to? And, you know, you listen, you watch different people and they go like, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's Tampa Bay or nothing. Can't bet this game, you know, and if you do, like, it's Tampa Bay. And he's just like, are we sure? Are we sure we have to be that sharp? And so here's the case that everybody's going to make again about Tampa Bay and the case that I've made this week on Tuesday and on Wednesday and why the early week stuff's really tough because you kind of get caught up in this vortex of, all right, how, you know, I always start with the underdog because that's just the way, you know, listen, every one of my top bets here is going to be an underdog play. And everything that you, and every time I've talked about you know, not necessarily liking a play or, you know, talking about a favorite, it's, there's never any exuberance to it, right? Because when I'm exuberant about a favorite, like I was on Monday night with Tampa, uh, I always seem to get burned. And, you know, it's the same way with like people getting really excited about like, you know, I mentioned the Baltimore New England game or even Kansas City against the Raiders, right? When you're excited about a favorite, you're and we've talked about this before, you are creating the value in the underdog, right? You are raising the price for the underdog as, as you get excited about it because we all kind of think the same thing. The problem here is, you know, we look at this game and we go, okay, it's three and a half, line's inflated, probably should be what? Three, two and a half. I've heard some say like, oh, my numbers pick them. And you go, okay, like congrats on your number, but like there's no way on earth this game would ever be lined in the real world at a sports book as a pick'em. Because of course, even at minus three, minus three and a half, people are gonna come piling in here on the Chiefs. But the thing is, this number has ticked towards Tampa Bay and getting closer to three. And that's what sort of raised my you know, spidey sense about this because there's clearly enough money coming in on Tampa Bay to drop this line to three and a half, right? This isn't the same thing as Denver and Miami last week where everybody wanted Miami 
you know, people would say offhand, like, oh, it's probably too high, but I can't, I can't not take Miami. Or it's probably too high, but, like, um, I'll stay away before I bet Denver. And we were, and, you know, we were on here going Denver. Like, a, Denver is a best bet. Like, that's the play. This line is overvalued. And people are talking about it in the way that's overvaluing it. But if every sharp better that I listen to talks about Tampa Bay, like no one's saying, oh, I don't care, Kansas City, good enough for me, right? They're still saying Tampa Bay, and they're making the case that Brady won't have pressure. And they're, you know, for me, I see that, like, okay, yeah, he's not going to have pressure, right? Derek Carr was able to sit back and throw it all day. And you go, if Derek Carr can do it, then Tom Brady can do it. And he's going to be able to work the intermediate pass game because we complain about him checking it down to Leonard Fournette or just randomly throwing the ball directly in the air to see how well that goes. And we make the jokes that maybe Tom, Tom you know, is past his bedtime and that's why he's bad in these primetime games. And so all of that makes sense and you go, okay, sure, then yeah, plus three and a half, like, yeah, they could win this game, they could beat the Chiefs. Um, it's not a game that the Chiefs necessarily need, but uh, and you sort of go, okay, I mean, they kind of do, I and mean, they'd love to be the one seed, they're only one game behind Pittsburgh. And you go, okay, like, sure. And But then you go, okay, what about, what's going on with Tampa Bay right now? Like, what did I really see on Monday? And did I see a game that was a tie game late? And, you know, like the Rams just barely win and it was this really like competitive game or was this a game that frankly, as you know, as much as we give sort of kudos to the Rams for winning this game, like shouldn't that game have been like a three touchdown type of a game? Like shouldn't the Bucks gotten absolute, absolutely smoked in that game? And so what's going to have to happen here for this turnaround for Tampa Bay to be really good? And is Tampa Bay just going to be one of these teams that's kind of a bully, right? Where they get up on top of Carolina and they just pound them into oblivion. Or are they going to be the team that lost twice to the Saints, lost to the Rams, would have lost to the Chargers if they were remotely competent, and really, like, their only nice game was against Green Bay. And we were on them in that game. But the more you look back and you go, okay, got to pick six. The defense did well against the against the Packers. But listen, we've seen enough from the Packers lately to go, yeah, Aaron Rodgers still really awesome. But there's still a lot of flaws with that team, especially defensively, but even offensively as well. And so the more I go, like, what's Tampa really done to deserve all this? Because all I'm seeing when I'm watching this team play is as much as Antonio Brown is on the team and Tom's getting him the ball and that's great. And, you know, Chris Godwin is an awesome receiver and Mike Evans isn't going to have to deal with Jalen Ramsey, right? All of these things are appropriate for sort of handicapping this game in the favor of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers against a Chiefs defense that, again, just not very good. But you go, okay, well, from an injury standpoint, the center, A.Q. Shipley, has been advised to retire for medical purposes, after getting what was thought to be a stinger, but is actually quite a serious neck injury. And Ali Marpet still hasn't been cleared in full from concussion protocol, as we sit here on Friday. This is a guy that we thought we were going to get back on Monday. And, you know, don't know how much you know about concussions or brain injuries, but, like, they can linger. And if you were expecting a guy that was out three weeks ago to come back, and you can't quite get him back on the practice field for two days in a row, I don't know that he's going to play. And the left tackle that went out at the start of the game, but came back in 
he's not necessarily ready to go. So you've got the entire left side of an offensive line. Now, can Kansas City necessarily take advantage of that? I don't know. Maybe if it's entirely Tampa Bay backups on the offensive line, or at least three-fifths of the offensive line are backups, maybe they can. Maybe Chris Jones can dominate the game, right? Maybe the Tampa Bay is going to have the same level of run success, which is to say not very much, that they've had against some of these good teams. And maybe this offense is just kind of broken. Maybe the whole Byron Leftwich, Bruce Arians, Tom Brady triumvirate here isn't working the same way that the Buck, that, uh, that Brady's offense worked with Josh McDaniels. And maybe the fact that they keep throwing the ball to Leonard Fournette is an indication that they don't really know what they're doing at this point. But again, maybe this is a really good spot. Maybe plus three and a half is good value. But from a defensive standpoint, Jamal Dean, one of their starting quarterbacks, out. And when Cooper Cup was running up and down the field through the entire first half and frankly much of the game last week from the slot, who is the guy who's getting burned over and over and over again? That was our boy Murphy Bunting, the hyphen. Well, he's still on the field. In fact, there's no getting that guy off the field. And so if you're the Chiefs, by the way, we haven't gotten to the fact that this is the Chiefs that they're playing here. Aren't you going to be able to take advantage of the fact that they're that the nickel corner and the slot position that's guarded by the Bucks that is bad? Aren't you going to be able to take advantage of that with somebody, whether it's Kelsey split out, whether it's Hill lined up in the slot, whether, you know, whomever, to be completely honest with you, right? And if Jamel Dean, who is, by the way, was getting burned pretty good by Robert Woods as well, like, aren't they going to take advantage of him or his backup, I should say, on the outside? And so, yeah, like this feels a little too cute even though I've been drinking the Kool-Aid sort of all week going like, yeah, it is too high, three and a half, et cetera, et cetera. But we have seen this number tick down to three. And we're talking minus three here. Now we're kind of reaching that zone where you kind of really just need the Chiefs to win the game. And if we look back at the Bucks here, what have we really seen that has been all that impressive? And I will admit, like I was caught hook, line, and sinker by the whole thing. And it just feels like it's going to be one of those games where everybody's just going to feel like they've outsmarted themselves a little bit too much. And maybe it's because the Chiefs have not covered a fair amount of these games. And that's what's kind of helping people shape this concept that three and a half is just too many points for the Chiefs on the road. Just, it's too many. God, there's no way the Chiefs could possibly cover three and a half points. And so... I think I'm flipping. I don't know that this is necessarily going to be a best bet. It's certainly not going to be in the contest because the line is at three and a half in the, in the Circa Million contest. I'd be looking for this at a minus three, even at some juice. But not only have I talked myself sort of off of Tampa Bay as a best bet, as a oh super contrarian like contest pick that like I think has a really good chance to win and it's also going to gain us a point here when a lot of people are taking Kansas City, especially after last week's bloodbath for a lot of people, there is sort of a world in which this week is kind of, I don't want to say chalky because there's some really messed up matchups, but like this isn't one that's going to be the key to somebody's week. Like sure, a lot of people will have this in a parlay, but you can sort of kick that away if 
you know, the Rams don't cover or the Jets win outright or some of these road favorites, some of these that we've already teased, right? A Cleveland, a New York, right? What if one of those two lose outright? Like the, the books are going to be just fine if Kansas City ends up covering this game. And they're obviously okay with taking Kansas City money if they're dropping this number closer to three. So if they're okay with taking Kansas City money, I'm kind of okay with giving them Kansas City money and then just sort of seeing where that goes come Sunday afternoon. Finally, the Sunday night game, the one that I didn't want to have to deal with. I didn't want to have to bother handicapping this game from a spread standpoint because it was the automatic survivor play. It is the survivor pick. Uh, even though we are out of Circa Survivor, I will still, you know, advise the, the play, uh, et cetera, et cetera. That being said, from a point spread standpoint, as I dig into it, and this is where the difference between contest strategy and handicapping comes about, right? The contest strategy is let's get a team that we just need to win outright, who is the biggest favorite of the week. That doesn't mean we need them to cover, we want them to cover, or that we think that they will cover. That just means from an odd standpoint, from a probability standpoint, that's the best possible position to be in, is having Green Bay left to use them in Survivor this week. That being said, we're looking at a, a number right now that's up to nine and a half in favor of Green Bay. First of all, there's obviously some value just in general, right? This is a line that should be about seven, right? We saw comparable games where there's Minnesota going to Green Bay, um, whether it's a couple other teams over the last two years. This game, even if it's the Bears from last year, right? Like this game should be six and a half or seven. Obviously, people don't love the Bears offense. One... You know, we still have that nasty taste in our mouth from that Monday Night Football game, so that's one of the reasons why we don't like it. But one of the reasons why we should feel a little bit better is Nick Foles isn't going to be in our life this weekend, and Mitch Trubisky is. Now, do I think Mitch Trubisky is necessarily better than Nick Foles? I will say that they've won games this year with Mitch Trubisky, and they haven't necessarily lost any games with Mitch Trubisky based on the fact that he was the quarterback for that early hot start, quote-unquote, hot, um, for the Bears. And so it can't be any worse than Foles, and I feel like this line is being lined like it is. I'm hoping that the involvement of Trubisky means a couple of run plays from the quarterback, a little mobility from the quarterback. I don't think that there's some massive downgrade. There's certainly not a massive downgrade in arm strength, but I don't think even there's that much of a massive downgrade when it comes to sort of reading a defense because Nick Foles' move is just kind of huck it up uh, in the same way that it was Tom Brady's move this past week and that it's Joe Flacco's general career. So it can't be worse than Foles. It might be a little bit better if he can get a couple extra first downs just using his legs. The red zone might actually be pretty good. Not pretty good, but not worst in the league because right now their red zone conversion into touchdowns, that percentage is the worst in the league. And they were 10% better last year and their quarterback was Mitch Trubisky. And so again, we're going 10% more from worst in the league, but that's still an improvement, right? When we're trying to look at this number and go, is it going to be better with Mitch than it is with Foles? And are we getting value? Like the line can never be 10. I can see why it could be nine and a half to protect yourself against 
teases, right? We're talking Sunday nighter, everybody teasing things to that last game, right? So if the number's eight and a half, like it was, everybody's teasing everything. They're throwing Cleveland. They're throwing the Giants. They're throwing the Dolphins. They're throwing all these games down to minus one, minus one, one, and then they're getting to Green Bay, and they're going like, we're going to finish this off by Green Bay minus two and a half. Teaser, seven legs, let's go. So that's why this number has to go up. It has to go up to nine and a half because they've taken enough teaser money where they go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Can't do it anymore. The teaser is now minus three and a half. If you guys, if you losers want it so badly, you have to get it at three and a half. And if the Packers win by a field goal, we are going to kill all those teasers and we're going to keep all that money. That's what that line is, right? It isn't necessarily, oh, Mitch is starting. Line got to go up one with the line. In a way, it's actually kind of a compliment in that they're like, you know what? This might actually be a three-point game if Mitch is in here, and we're going to have to really stop the teaser money at this point. We cannot be exposed come Saturday and Sunday when people want to bet the NFL. We cannot be exposed to a minus two and a half teaser line. That being said, this game could very well land on seven. They very well land on eight. In fact, both games last year landed underneath the current number that it is now. And it wasn't that much better, if at all, for the Bears last season. From a condition standpoint, general handicap, big wind game, it looks like, right? No real weather other than that, but a big wind, like nighttime type stuff, like real soldier field type stuff, except for the fact that it's at Lambeau Field. No fans, so what difference does it make? Honestly, what difference does it make whether this is in Soldier Field or Lambeau Field? There's no travel involved. It's long grass. It's outdoors in the cold in almost December, according to the calendar that I had to consult earlier. What's the difference, right? This might as well be, right? Like this is, again, that Bears game in that cold weather. Somebody is getting to 19. And you go, well, hang on a sec here, bucko. The Packers have a much better offense than some of these other teams. And I would say to you, do they? Because the big Bears wins that we've had this season were against the Buccaneers. Again, we just talked about how the Buccaneers might be broken. But again, Tom Brady, ton of weapons, all that kind of stuff. The Saints, Drew Brees, you know, again... Both guys, not nearly as good as Aaron Rodgers right now, but how about we throw like 40 kilometer, kilometer mile per hour, kilometers slash miles slash whatever uh, per hour wins here, you know, at night. Like that's not exactly Aaron Rodgers like wheelhouse at this point. That's kind of nobody's wheelhouse. And so if the Bears, not really going to be Trubisky's wheelhouse either, but listen, he was already looked like he was throwing into or with the wind as it is. Point is here is like, we just saw the Packers not be able to cover a big number against the Jags a couple of weeks ago. And Jake Luton and the Jags offense is about as good as the Bears offense at this point in time, right? Especially relative to the Packers defense. The only thing that's throwing me off here is Akeem Hicks being questionable. Because the one thing that the Packers or anybody is going to want to do in heavy wins, right, is run the football a little bit more. And Aaron Jones, of course, more than capable. But if it's against the Bears defensive front that includes Akeem Hicks, that's going to be a bigger issue, right? That's going to shut that down or at least, you know, from drive to drive, be able to potentially shut that down. 
So I need him to be in the lineup for me to feel fully confident about it. The fact that he is questionable, you know, again, is probably why this number isn't sort of a seven in the, in the sports book saying, you know, have at it type of a thing. I think the Packers win this game, but I think it is by less than nine and a half. Uh, I just wish I was a little bit more confident. We'll see over the weekend um, if this is going to be this game time decision thing. That's going to suck, but you never know what we find out on Saturday with regards to um, his health from an offensive line standpoint. Leno, the tackle, not Jay. Uh, the tackle for the Bears also questionable. And if there were sort of two positions that I really want the Bears to have something here, it's of course on the offensive line and it's right in the heart of that defense. But either way, plus nine and a half for the Bears here, I think has to be a play. As for the Monday night game, listen, we're going to talk about that at length uh, on Monday or <laughs> at least a little bit with Sheldon Alexander. We've got a Tuesday night football game, as mentioned, still on the board. So a lot going on there. Um, college football started off really well here. We had two wins this afternoon. Uh, looks like, we're, uh, yeah, we're going to get a, a loss here with Notre Dame um, and then got Oregon State here going up against Oregon. So hopefully we can get out of here with a three and one. Either way, two and two at the absolute worst on a Thanksgiving Friday. Uh, apologies for getting this a little bit later out. Lots going on here in headquarters. Um, been a wacky week. Uh, obviously a trying Thanksgiving with the Cowboys going out in a game that we didn't even want anything to do with. Uh, but here we are. So again, full forward with uh, Circa Million. Um, Sunday, going to have that, right? Got five picks against the spread, the big bets, the best bets going for that one, the last cuts, um, and analyzing uh, the different selections in that contest. And of course, updates on the lines for Sunday, the injury reports that have come out over the course of Saturday and Sunday, and all of that other good stuff. Teaser, money line parlay bucket, alluded to that here today, but we'll get a little bit more official come Sunday with some of that stuff. Um, so uh, hope everybody had a really good Thanksgiving. Have a great weekend, everybody. Follow me at MRussAuthentic on Twitter for college football plays, in-game bets, and general sarcasm about these teams we bet on. Until Sunday, I'll see you at the window.